0: Hello everyone. Welcome to C-Suite Talks, a podcast that takes you inside some of the most interesting businesses and industries today. It explores career success and how we can make a difference. We invite you to join us on this
1: journey, and welcome to C-Suite Talks. I'm Beth Holbein, co-CEO of C-Suite. And I'm Diane Gubin, co-CEO of C-Suite with Beth. And today, we are just so happy to be speaking with Dr. Bonnie Wims. Bonnie is a counseling psychologist, and boy, do we have questions for you. So let me, let me just start with, what are some of the issues you're seeing in working women today? What are the issues, the causes, the solutions? I want to like, dig into working women and psychology.
2: Well you know in thinking about that question I, what pops in my head is the more things change the more they stay the same you know um i think in a lot of ways there there's some of the, the issues women have always been challenged by um, there's you know a lot of there's a lot of things that women have to deal with when they go into the work working world that i think uh, more and more men are challenged by too but There's still this sort of sense of women that they have to deal with really unique challenges. But the thing that I like to hone in on when I work with women is the idea of competition. And that might sound a little weird to you, but the reason I bring it up is that we've been taught through the years to think of it sort of like a a pie and there's a finite number of pieces, right? So if you're aspiring for a position, and uh, you're really trying for that position, you're really thinking that there's only one woman that can get to that position. So competition among women can get really brutal and fierce, because our sense is that I've got to tear you down so that I can move up. There's Throughout the years, that's been a real huge problem for us, because Uh, it really has been true. There haven't been very many women to reach certain heights. And so as you push, you've kind of got to step on all the other uh, fingers and toes and heads so that you can get to that vaulted position that only, you know, a precious few can get to. Um, And it's really a problem for a lot of reasons, not only in the competitive spirit, obviously, but when we compete with each other, then we don't have a peer group, you know, we don't have support. We don't have people that we can talk to and understand what we're going through. Um, and really just try to, you know, understand the process of what's happening. And also there's, there's less ability to talk about the challenges, talk about money, talk about the challenge of promotion, talk about work-life balance, and so will, i think women then try to wall off their feelings they don't want to appear vulnerable they don't want to, um they don't want to, to feel like they're somehow not uh, achieving what maybe a man would be achieving and at the end of the day it just leaves us more isolated so i feel like competition among women although it is changing with more and more um options opening up more fields opening up, more positions opening up, women fighting to get to these positions. I feel like the competitive uh, tearing each other down is starting to change because we can all realize that there isn't a pie. It's actually infinite. We just have to fight to create those positions.
0: Yeah, I think too there was a lot of ageism too with women. Oh yeah. Um because I know when I was young, younger in my career, you would never ask a woman their age, and if you did, they would bite your head off and all that stuff. And I think that's kind of calmed down too as that generation
1: has passed and progressed. You mean because you have to give your age for everything now and sometimes you yes. have to say it over the phone and you're like <laughs> I don't Yeah. know.
0: Right? I agree. That that was very well said and well put, Bonnie, exactly. Thank you. Yeah.
1: The issue that you just talked about with um, it becoming, you know, steeper and more competitive the higher you get, do you think part of that too is, and losing our support network, you know, and again, that's why C-Suite even exists is that we can be that support network, but the higher you get within an organization, the less likely you're to go have lunch with your subordinates.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, it's true for men and women, right? You know, it's, they often talk about the the high levels of being a very lonely sort of place to be. But the difference, I think, is that men can often create their peer groups quite easily with other, you know, levels of
0: golf or sports or whatever. Yeah.
2: yeah, Golf or, you know, there's there's just more of them. (laughs) There's just simply more of them. Right. And so I think you you'll find that uh, as there's more women there would be more opportunity for that. But uh yeah, it is a it is a huge challenge, I think, because what do our peers do for us? Like C suite, what does that do for us? Well it gives us a sense of a community. Yes. And it gives us a sense that, oh, this is happening, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing and I can I can understand what's happening because it happened to you too. The peer groups are so vital, and men have always had that. They've always had that.
0: Right. No, exactly. Exactly. And I think we've all experienced that, too, over the years, and that's why the networking groups are so important, because you are in more of a safer zone, right, with your peers to talk and so forth. Yeah. So what do you think, I mean, Diane and I had an experience with this a couple years ago when the Me Too movement started and all the women were coming out against the men that had abused them or et cetera or alleged. And do you see that impacting too? Because what I've seen is a lot of people withdrawing from doing social activities with their staff and with their peers at work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the whole, I've been me too, which is some phrase I've heard. Um, It's a lack of understanding, obviously, because the me too movement came out of a real uh, problem you know, and it needed to be addressed and it needed to be spoken of. But also just like anything where we've been holding on to something or been quiet about something, when it comes out, the pendulum swings way over here. And now all of a sudden, you know, we can all probably name people that got caught up in that, that maybe shouldn't have, you know, that really it wasn't necessarily, um, it, it was a bit of a, of a overreaction to something. So I do think some people are very if they're not taking the time, try to understand what that was about. Because to me, it's very clear what it's about. And it's not, um, it's not maybe an inappropriate joke, or it's not that women don't know how to laugh, or it's not that women um, aren't able to maybe even enjoy a, A a kind of a body joke at times. You know, I've been around plenty of women where we're all joking about different things. It's possible. I think it's a lack of understanding what it was really about. And what it was really about was um, women uh, who were in positions of being a subordinate over a male who had power over them and using that in a way through either sexual intimidation or other ways to try to keep them, you know, uh, down. And so it's it's not the funny little joke. You know, it's not that you can't socialize or laugh with women. It's not that at all. Because I've talked with the two of you, and you have a great sense of humor. So it's, you know what I mean? I think it's really a lack of understanding.
1: Well, that's good. That's good. Right, right. Oh, my gosh, we'd go on forever. So <laughs> yeah. just a little bit, and then we'll dive into juicier questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now I want to know about your background. Yeah.
2: Bonnie, let's talk about why did you become a psychologist? Why, why this career path? Yeah. So, um, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I think, I mean, the age always changes when I think about it. Cause I just, I can't remember exactly, but always, um, I grew up in an alcoholic home, alcoholic, abusive home. My father was, um, not a well man. And so as a child, um, I think a child has a choice at that point to try to, uh, decide what they're going to do with that sort of upbringing. Personally, it made me curious. I wanted to understand how is it that somebody, uh, what has happened to somebody to make them uh, behave that way in such a counterintuitive way to what a loving father is supposed to be um, behaving like. So I was always curious. I started taking psychology classes um, in high school. And then just like life happens, I ended up uh, going into work into a completely different field had family couldn't get back because you know it's a lot of it's a lot of school <laughs> to become a psychologist but yeah. I was finally able to do it and um, it it's to me I still feel it today I'm always curious as to uh, what what are people thinking about when they behave the way they behave what is it that's happened to you that has um challenge you in such a way that you end up then behaving in a certain way that's maybe abusive or violent or even, even, you know, with working with women where women don't make good choices for themselves, whether it's personally or professionally because of uh, some trauma that they've gone through. So I'm fascinated by that. And I do, uh, I, my goal is in working with people is to help them realize that through that lens of looking at your trauma Um, you can actually make huge choices to change. You know, it's not inevitable that you're going to end up one certain way. Every day we have choices, a million choices. And so helping people identify that and that they can step away from, you know, uh, maybe a a low self-esteem or a real desperate need to feel that they're not worthy or they're not valued, um, to really step away from that and, and check in with who they really are you know, kind of move that what's happened to them, but to the side and just get a clear picture of, of their own real value. It's the most uh, rewarding thing. I would do it till the day I drop as long as I s- still have a memory and I can still <laughs> speak. I, <laughs> I, I love what I do. I love it. That's good.
1: I love it. I love it. And a typical client you work with, it sounds like, is female, career. Yeah. What's a typical client for you?
2: I mean, I think in marketing, right, we kind of attract who we are um, without trying. And then it's a matter of trying harder to attract others. So I, have, I do attract myself. I attract a lot of women, um, probably 40 plus, um, who just have huge success in their life but just an area that hasn't quite worked out and they don't, they're kind of trapped in trying to figure it out. You know? Um, I always tell people if you could figure this out with your brain, because they're brilliant, uh, you would have by now. Cause you're a smart person. It's not your brain. That's the problem. You know, it's this real deep rooted emotional belief about yourself that we need to challenge and understand. So yeah, I work with a lot of women who just find themselves sort of, trucking along doing quite well but there's just this area they've never really been able to resolve sometimes it's relationships relationships you know wanting a significant other sometimes it's relationship with family sometimes it's relationship with themselves you know feeling that they've done what they want to do in their life but um, I don't just work with women but I do have a tendency to attract. Women, so that's fine by me. I love women
1: <laughs> that's great <laughs> that's great that's great, and you're bi-continental, right because you moved to London, so you've got a whole thing going over in London too yeah, no that's fabulous so Bonnie, why don't you get right to the root like women and money what are you
2: seeing conversations concerns how is that playing out? yeah, so women and money it's you know it's a funny thing um everybody has trouble talking about money like. No one's. I mean, no one really loves it. Maybe Bill Gates. I don't know. But most people don't (laughs) like talking about money. And the real reason is because of the meaning we attach to the money. It's not the money. It's what do we feel about the money, right? So I think for women and money, I think it's quite a charged conversation. We we have certain beliefs about money and the way in which we feel about it. And for women, I think it is a bit of uh, our parents. How did they talk about money? Um, was one of our parents a worrier, or uh, was money used uh, to express love and affection? Was it used as a weapon in a divorce? Was it deprived of as a punishment? It's all of this experience of what money uh, has been sort of used in in our childhood and on our lives. And also, did you grow up wealthy or not? You know, were your needs met? Were you were you always needing something were you um was it linked to shame and guilt because there was a lot or not enough so our experience with money growing up and that's you know not exclusive to women that's across the board but i think for women then there's this societal expectation that comes in um not exclusively i don't want to generalize but men do have a tendency to be more competitive and aggressive with money investing in money much more confident in it Um, some of that's just because they've had years and years of experience, um, more years of experience. But also, they're more competitive in that way. Um, men have in the past tended to take science, math, you know, some of those other types of subjects that women weren't taking, um, which is changing, thank goodness. So women can time make women can kind of turn the lack of money or the unsuccessful uh, situation with money as something on themselves they blame themselves there's a lot of statistics that show if the market goes den- down men will blame you know their broker or the market women will blame their choices somehow they didn't choose correctly
1: oh okay uh, somehow we didn't tell our broker
2: enough what we were looking for <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah. And there's a tendency for that, which we really have to watch for as women. Um, And I think we have an insecurity around money a lot of the times because we live longer. (laughs) We need it more. Um, We have a tendency to move in and out of our career. If we've had children, we've taken time off. So sometimes people express a real sense of being behind. I feel like I got to catch up because I took that time off. Um, Is there enough money? Is there enough time to get that money? Um, And we have fear. We have a lot of fear because we don't have a lot of role models to look to more and more now. But, you know, there was a time I think we're all around the same age. Certainly when I was younger, you know, who was it that was a woman talking about money that you saw on the news or you know, in newspapers, there was, there were none.
0: And your friends didn't either. I mean, really. Yeah.
2: It was all about shopping, right? Yeah. <laughs> there was no, well, yeah, they didn't talk about your 401k. Right. And stuff. No, no. Um, yeah, they say that the, in the corner of research, when women do tend to equate money with love and emotion and that we tend to, we give more away. Uh, we save more for retirement and we're more into, um, charities and philanthropy and that sort of thing, which is all great. But women in high positions that begin to earn a lot more money, there's no blueprint. You know, there's a lot, there's no role models out there. There are more now, but there, there aren't enough. And there certainly haven't been enough in the past. So there's not a generational sense. Like my mother wasn't in the stock market, my grandmother, you know, it's like, I look back on that and I have no experience of that. My mother was sitting at the table, clipping coupons and going to three different grocery stores. She was very concerned about money but it was in a different way. And it certainly didn't trickle down to a sense of confidence for me, you know, with money. So I really think in the societal expectations, I think that's where women really struggle with money. And we got to kind of break that mold. And I think the more and more women that are, you know, in high positions, the more C-suites that exist, the more opportunity we have to Join calls and talk about investing and talking, the more we can break out of that mold.
1: Well, it's very good. There is a shift in that direction. So let's talk about
2: therapy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs>
1: So, so, um, what, what kind of specific therapy do you provide? And then what do people think, like, what's the misconception about therapy? Like, what is it that you do? Is there a name or a type? Uh,
2: Yeah, I'm kind of eclectic, which is, makes it hard for me to explain it. But in simplest terms, uh, I think the term in the U S is person centered. And what that just means is you and I are meeting as people. I'm not some expert that sits up here on some, you know, hierarchy throne and I'm going to dictate to you uh, what you need to do. These are two people meeting and really trying to hash through uh, whatever it is that you're challenged with. And that leads into the biggest misconception is that I give advice. I don't give advice. I never give advice. Because if I told you what to do, I would just join the chorus of, of voices that are already in your head. Because your mother tells you what to do, your husband, your sister, your brother, your friends, your coworkers, everybody tells us each other what to do. <laughs> my dog. This is <laughs> my dog. This is what oh, you need to, to do. To so, <laughs> it, therapy is about helping you begin to understand and gain that powerful sense in yourself that you know what to do, and you do know what to do. It just gets covered up with a lot of you know, yucky voices sometimes from either our own experiences or the people in our lives. So. Yeah. And that I give advice is probably the biggest misconception.
1: Wow. And virtual, can you do virtual Is the same? Is it the same as in person?
2: I think so. People will challenge that. Um, less now since COVID, since we got forced into it prior to COVID, I definitely heard from professionals that they felt other therapists that they were, they would question that it could work. Um, I think, there are unique ways that you work with it, you know. But it's the same, same as you guys. You know, if I'm talking to you on a Zoom call, I'm trying to look at that green dot so that I'm looking you in the eye. Like there are things that you learn that you have to use uh, within the modality to make sure that people feel that you are present with them and that there's nothing else happening in your world and that you are very focused on the session. That's all you need to do, and, and however you do that, um, it works.
0: Are there breakthrough, I mean, has there been changes in the last 10, 15 years in therapy and how therapy is given to an individual?
2: Is there any new techniques or Um, or is it basically still the same? You know what I think is changing is, um, and this is a good thing, and I think this might be jumping ahead to a question, but the idea that therapy is for the really ill and that it's more, I like to say mental wellness, because it's. I think. I think we're switching the way we work with people, and the fact that you know, it's. It's. I would like people to think of therapy as something like you know, getting your getting your teeth cleaned, although more pleasant than that, like a like a yeah, exactly, <laughs> and hopefully more, and more often. often. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, like a like a. um, a, Oh God, what's the word? The where you're, you know, preventative. There, thank you been a long day so preventative work so it's not about oh let's wait until we're just absolutely devastated and i can't go to work and i just can't get out of bed let's let's challenge you up front and really work through some issues that are bothering you now so that we can um you know just make you feel the best you can feel like why not so i think there's a movement away from thinking that somehow therapy is just for the really ill yeah. yeah, no,
0: that's true. What I what I feel is that companies, you know, we all have our plans with our companies and, you know, you're allowed so many sessions and so forth. And I know I had a relative that took advantage of that, but they only paid for two sessions and and she needed a lot more than that. And she couldn't afford
2: it. And I we were so hopeful because she at least went to the two. But then ugh, so then she stopped. That is the most that is the most heart wrenching thing thing that i hear about time and time again is that the benefits are woefully woefully too small you know two sessions first session's introductions and just trying to figure out what it is you're there for and the second session you're ending like where's the work like it's just ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous
0: yeah so as we wrap up for today what i am interested in is you know companies are giving employees mental health days off and there are many public service announcements Highlighting the benefits of therapy, what more do you
2: think can be done? We don't have enough time. There is so much more to be done. Um, I love that people are talking about it more. I love that there are you know um, companies mm-hmm. giving mental health days off. I love that there are um, people talking about it in the press, um, athletes, celebrities. I love all of that. Talk, talk, talk. Please talk more. But as we were just saying, if there's not money where your mouth is, if there's no support behind that. So someone hears all of this and they think, you know what, I really am suffering from anxiety. And Naomi Osaka, the tennis player talked about it. And that makes me think I should get some help. And they go to their employer employer and they get the two sessions. What happens next? You know? So the benefits are terrible. The uh, insurance reimbursement is terrible. The access is terrible. It's really, there just isn't enough, and we're not investing in it, frankly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I don't see any changes. No. I, it, yeah. No. Yeah, not at all. I had a friend who got a day off, you know, last month for Mental Health Awareness Month, and he was excited. Can I have an hour? Forget a day. I'll take an hour. <laughs> but I was cheating with him because I said, can I have the the name of your HR person? Because I want to explain to them what this day off, how... You know how small and insignificant, and he's like, no, because they'll take away my day off. But it's <laughs> it's the the idea is that we need to give people an opportunity to get treatment. You know, and that's where you, they just don't. It's money. Right. It just comes down to money. It's always about money. Uh, so that's I've, I'm very frustrated, like you just told, of somebody that finally takes that step because it takes a lot sometimes for somebody to admit they really want and need help it takes a lot it's a big time commitment yep carve out the time and commit to the idea that they're finally going to make a change and then they get told you know they can't they they get their two sessions or time's up time's up yeah and they don't feel better they know you know and it the underlying message there is that you don't value you're not valued your your illness is not valued you know Uh, you break your leg and go to the doctor, you're going to get treated until your leg is well. It just isn't thought of in the same vein at all. And I hear people, you know, whispering that, you know, oh, are they really sick? Or, you know, oh, she says she's depressed, you know, that sort of thing, where it's not thought of on par with, with other illnesses. And it just couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Well we really appreciate having you here today. And so Dr. Bonnie Wims, where can our listeners find you if they want to find you?
2: Everywhere. Um I <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, wow, we're there. Um, uh, my website, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, I'm everywhere. I I really want to throw open the doors of this stigma and, and hidden secret about what therapy is. And I just try to be accessible, even if it's just to have a conversation like this, because I, I'm really just one conversation at a time trying to tear down that whole idea that it's, uh, it's only meant for other people and those really sick people out there and that we could all really benefit from you know sometimes just having a conversation with another human being in a real way so that we can iron a few things out. So um, yeah, I think I said it, right? Facebook, LinkedIn, all the socials, Bonnie Wims, 1M.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening today, everyone. And we want to thank our sponsors, Google, RSM, an accounting firm, Manette, a law firm, Woodward Sawyer, Employee Benefits, Amplify Professional Services, Executive Search and IT Consulting, we want to thank you again for listening and hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify and everywhere you find your podcasts. Leave us a review. Excellent, of course. And then follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. And we love hearing from you. So send us an email at media at org. That's C-S-W-E-E-T dot org. And check out our website and come to our events and be active, www.csweet.org. And thank you for today. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Beth.